Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You find some interesting responses from this video. A lot of them good, a lot of them a little off. <laughs> Way off. Jesus founded a religion to control the masses, is what one of them said. Uh, I liked, he was a pretty cool guy who had a peaceful philosophy. He was probably a person and good at what he did. And there was one lady, she said, he was a dude who lived back in the day and he had a beard. Okay. Jesus had a unique, positive message. I wonder what responses we would find if we went over to the entrance of Home Depot or Walmart and asked the very same question. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? This is the most important question that you will ever have to answer. Who is Jesus? Well, last week we saw Jesus feed the 5,000. And the people did not fully understand who he was. They thought he was a great miracle worker who could give, him, give them free food. Basically, just meeting their physical needs. They did not realize that he was truly the bread of life. And so in our passage today, Jesus goes off with his disciples to pray. And they ask him, or he asks them, the most important question that we could ever have to answer. So let's look together at Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised." It's very interesting in Luke's gospel up to this point, surprisingly, the angels and the demons know who Jesus is. They know his true identity, but we've not seen a confession from the mouth of a human as to the true identity of Christ. If you remember when Jesus encountered the demons back in Luke 4.41, the demons came out of many crying, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them. It would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So the demons knew who Jesus was, that he was the Christ. So what I want to do with this passage of Scripture this morning is I want to ask four questions of this text. Four questions. So here's the first question of this passage this morning. And it's basically Jesus' question to his disciples. We find this in verses 18 and 19. What's the word on the street concerning Jesus? 
Now, Jesus knows what the crowds are saying about him. Jesus knows all things. But for the sake of his disciples, he's asking the question, who are people, what are people saying about me? What's the word out on the street? What are, what are people, what are the different opinions that are coming around there? And so he gives, or they give three answers. The first one is John the Baptist. Well, that was kind of interesting because by this time, John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. And maybe some of the people that were around thought that John the Baptist was still around and that he was popular. Or maybe they thought that John the Baptist had risen from the dead. So there's some confusion thinking that maybe Jesus is John the Baptist. Others were saying, well, maybe he's Elijah. Because you know Elijah is that Old Testament prophet that never died. He was taken up in a whirlwind. And then Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, prophesies about the return of Elijah. In Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day that the Lord comes. Now, Elijah was promised to come, but this was a prophecy about John the Baptist. John the Baptist would be the one to come to prepare the way. If you go back in the book of 1 Kings chapter 17, you find all these miracles that Elijah did, raising a widow's son from the grave. So maybe they thought he was Elijah, come back. Others said, well, maybe he's a prophet of old. Maybe it's Jeremiah or Isaiah or one of the prophets that's come back. So obviously, the crowd saw something supernatural in Jesus. The feeding of the 5,000. But there's just a lot of confusion as to who he truly was. We see the same thing in today's culture concerning the identity of Jesus. Jesus is still more popular today than he's ever been. There's been more books written about Jesus. You still can go to the History Channel, the Discovery Channel. There's more television programs about Jesus. Jesus is still more popular than ever. But here's the question. What are people saying about Jesus? Is it the true Jesus of the Bible? You know, some people think Jesus was a great moral teacher. He had good ethical teachings. He had some good things to say about how we should treat each other. He was a good teacher. Others think that he was a good social activist. He was about helping the oppressed. He was about helping those that were poor and needy. He was a social activist. And some people say, well, maybe he was just a martyr for a cause he believed in. He died. They, did, they don't deny his death, but it was more like just a martyr for a cause. Now, I've been warning us as a church for many months now about this new movement that's heading into evangelicalism called progressive Christianity. It's kind of not really Christianity, but it's, it's disguising itself as Christianity. It's called progressive Christianity. It used to be known as liberal Christianity. used to be known as emergent Christianity. Now they're calling themselves progressive Christianity. And they have some crazy views about Jesus. And so if you go to the website of progressivechristianity.org, they give their eight points of progressive Christianity. Let me read to you two of the points of the eight points of progressive Christianity. We believe that following the path of the teacher Jesus can lead to healing and wholeness, a mystical connection to God, they put in quotations, as well as an awareness and experience not only of the sacred, but the oneness and unity of all of life. We affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide but one of many ways to experience God, the sacredness, the oneness, the unity of life, and we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom, including the earth, in our spiritual journey. This is what progressive Christians are starting to teach about who Jesus is. 
It's very interesting. Ligonier Ministries, you know, back in March, I went to the Ligonier Conference. It's R.C. Sproul's ministry. They did a state of theology study that came out last year, the 2020 state of theology study. They researched and they asked about 3,000 adults in the United States uh, what they believed about things related to Christianity. Surprisingly, there were 630 professing evangelicals among the study. But here are two of the questions. This was the first question that was asked. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 55% agreed that this was true. Over half the people believed Jesus was a created being. Second, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 51% agreed with that. Now, needless to say, there's a lot of confusion in our world today about who Jesus is. Whether it's from people on the street, whether it's from progressive Christianity, whether it's from somebody that you know, there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. And not much has changed because back during Jesus' day, there was a lot of confusion as to who he was. He asked the question, who are the crowds saying that I am? A lot of different answers. So that's the first question. What's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? Okay, second question. The second question is, what is the ultimate question? What is the ultimate question? We see this in verse 20. But he said to them, Who do you say that I am? You. The emphasis is on you there in the original language. He turns to his disciples and says, I've I've, I've heard all the thoughts. I've heard all the opinions of the crowds. Let's make it very personal. Who do you say that I am? Who do you personally say that I am? It's a very important question. Because how you answer that question will determine your eternal destiny. Whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell depends on how you answer that question. So let me talk to children that are in here. Let me talk to youth. It's a question to you. Not what your parents think. Not do I go to church or do I go to team kid or youth group or, or all these different things. No, the question is very personal that every single one of us is going to have to answer. Who do you personally say that Jesus is? And children, it's not your parents' answer, it's your answer. Now, you need to listen to your parents because hopefully they have the right answer. But each one of us has to come face to face with this question. Now, why did Luke write his gospel in the first place? What was Luke's purpose in writing this gospel? If you go back to the very first verses... Luke 1, 3-4. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Remember, Theophilus is the, is the guy he's writing to. That you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Why is Luke writing this gospel? That you may have certainty about Jesus. You may have certainty about what you believe. And that's my prayer for all of you here this morning, that you have certainty when you leave this place as to who Jesus is. Now, Peter gets the answer right. What does Peter say? Peter answers, the Christ of God. He gets the answer right. Now, before we get into the answer there, literally God's Messiah is how it is in the original language. God's Messiah. Before we understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ of God, let's ask a question. How did Peter get the answer right? 
Is it because he's such a smart guy? What does Matthew's gospel tell us about how Peter got the answer? Matthew 16, 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Now here's the thing. Peter had firsthand knowledge of who Jesus was. He was there with Jesus in the flesh. He saw Jesus perform miracles. He heard Jesus teach and preach. Peter had all the information he needed as to who Jesus was. But Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven has. So here's the point. If Peter is going to get the right answer, something supernatural has to happen in his heart and mind to give him the ability to get the right answer. Information about Jesus is not enough. There has to be this supernatural revelation that happened to Peter to open his eyes, to open his heart, to to come to the right answer. And that's what happens to us today. Now, you can learn about Jesus from the Bible. You can read about Jesus from the Bible. You can can watch videos about Jesus. You can receive information about Jesus. But there has to come a point where God does a supernatural internal work of grace in your heart to open your eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. You need a supernatural eye-opening, okay? A heart-opening. This happened to Lydia, Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Okay, Do you catch what's going on there? She's listening to Paul teach. She's listening to Paul preach. She's she's tracking with the information. But it wasn't until the Lord opened her heart that she could truly understand the gospel. So the Lord has to open your heart. You can't open your heart. The Lord has to be the one to open your heart. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person, that's talking about an unsaved person, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. You've got to have the Holy Spirit do a work in your heart to reveal to you who Christ truly is. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 4-6, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of God. Of Jesus Christ. Every single unsaved person is spiritually blind, and God has to do like He did on the day of creation. He has to say, Let there be light in the person's heart, shine that light in their heart so that the blinders go off so they can see the glory of who Christ is. So you need the information about who Jesus is, you need word, you need the truth. But you also need the Spirit of God to do that work of grace. What did Jesus say to Peter? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. How did Peter get the right answer? God gave it to him. If you're here this morning and you know who Jesus is and you have a relationship with Christ, it's because God has done an internal work in your heart and mind to supernaturally give you that ability to say yes to Jesus. 
He's opened your blind eyes. He's opened your dead heart. He's done a work of grace in you to show you who Jesus truly is. So the first question is, what's the word on the street? A lot of confusion. Second question is, what's the ultimate question? Who do you say that I am? Answer, you're the Christ of God. You're God's Messiah. Now let's ask the third question this morning. What does the name God's Messiah actually mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, I'm the Christ of God? Or Peter says, you're the Christ of God. Well, Christ is the word Messiah. It means anointed one. The one who is anointed. The promised anointed one. And if you go back to the Old Testament and trace it from the very beginning, God has made a promise that an anointed one, a Messiah, would come. Going all the way back to Genesis. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? And the Lord came and pronounced a curse on the serpent? When the Lord pronounced a curse on the serpent, that was the very first time in the Bible, three chapters in, that the gospel is announced that there would come a Messiah. Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now what in the world is this talking about? God made an announcement from the very beginning that from the offspring of a woman would come a man, he, who would bruise Satan, who would crush Satan. So a man had to be born of a woman. And not just any man, but one who's fully God and fully man. Holy God and holy man. Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to earth as a man in the flesh to fulfill that prophecy from Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. John 1.15, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. Well, how was Jesus born? We know he was born of a, of a virgin. He was born of a woman. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were three offices of people who were anointed. The prophets were anointed, the priests were anointed, and the kings were anointed. Just these three offices, the prophets, the priests, and the kings of Israel. Elijah, in 1 Kings 19, 16, the prophets, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Malaloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. The prophets were anointed with oil to set them apart as God's spokesmen. The prophets were anointed. But the priests were also anointed. 
Levites, Aaron and his sons, in Exodus chapter 40, verses 11 through 13. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. So the priests were anointed to serve the Lord. Prophets were anointed to serve the Lord. And then kings were anointed to serve the Lord. Remember David? 2 Samuel 5.3 So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Now Samuel had already anointed him earlier, but here the nation of Israel is recognizing David as their king. So prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. But here's the interesting thing. There was never one individual in the entire Old Testament that fulfilled all three offices at the same time. You couldn't be a king and a priest. You couldn't be a king and a prophet. You, you, you could only be a prophet, priest, or king. Now, there's some that you could, you could argue that Moses was a prophet slash priest. You can argue that Samuel was a prophet slash priest. But what happened to Saul when he tried to become a priest as a king? He lost his kingdom because he was operating out of his role. Jesus, as the promised Messiah, is the only one who comes and fulfills all three roles as the anointed one. He's the anointed prophet. He's the anointed priest. He's the anointed king. As the anointed prophet, Jesus not only preached God's word, but he is the word. He's the embodiment of God's word. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's talking about Jesus being the actual word. He's the ultimate final prophet. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So Jesus is the anointed prophet that speaks the word of God and is the word of God. As the anointed priest, Jesus is not only the one who performed the sacrifice, but he himself was the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice for our sins. You see, the priests were the ones that would do the daily sacrifices. They would do the day of atonement. They would do the sacrificial system. In Hebrews 10, 12, But when he, Christ, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's the priest and the sacrifice. As the anointed king, Jesus rules supreme over all things and will come back one day on a white horse. Revelation 19.16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the Christ of God. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the prophet, priest, and king. He's the Christ. Now, the angels have already announced this in the Gospel of Luke. What did Gabriel tell Mary? In Luke 1, 32-33, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to you him or give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end it's already been promised that he would be the king that would rule 
And then what did the angels announce to the shepherds at Bethlehem in Luke 2.11? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So what does, Jesus, what does it mean for Jesus to be Christ the Lord or Christ or God's Christ? It means he's the anointed Messiah. What does that mean? It means that he's the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate priest. He's the ultimate, ultimate king who has come to fulfill all those Old Testament prophecies to be God's servant. Now, what's going to be his mission? What's going to be the Messiah's mission? That's our fourth question. What is, what is Christ the Messiah? Well, he's the prophet, priest, and king. But... The fourth question is, okay, what's the mission of the Messiah? What's the Messiah's mission? What was he sent to do? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. Look at verse 20, 21 and 22. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This is the first time Jesus preaches the gospel to his followers, tells them what's going to happen. And notice the language that Jesus used there. The Son of Man must suffer. These things must happen. It is part of God's sovereign plan that these things happen to Jesus. It's part of God's prophetic timetable. These things must happen. Okay, so what must the Messiah, Christ the Lord, what must he go through? What must he suffer? Well, it says he must suffer, be rejected, and be killed. Obviously, Jesus is talking about the cross, the crucifixion. Isaiah 53, 4-5. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we're healed. He's going to be suffering at the hands of sinful men. But not only is he going to suffer at the hands of sinful men, he's going to suffer the justice of God against our sins, the penalty that we should have suffered, the wrath of God. Romans 5, 8 through 11. God shows his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation we're saved from god's wrath by the blood of jesus in our place we stand condemned against a holy god in our sin and we deserve nothing but hell and christ stood in the gap and he received that penalty in full in his body so that he could reconcile us by his blood to the Father. We were once alienated and estranged as enemies to a holy God, and Jesus reconciled us to the Father through his death. This is what he suffered. Jesus says, I must suffer. I must be killed. I must die on the cross. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed. What are these things that Jesus is going to suffer? An excruciating death on the cross, bearing our sin and shame, taking our place, satisfying the full justice of God, shedding his blood so that we could be forgiven. But that's not all. What else did Jesus say he's going to do? And on the third day, be raised. It's the death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus says these things must happen. i got to die first, then I'll be raised. He talks about the resurrection, the glorious resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 13-14, If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. Our faith is in vain. It means nothing. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. What's the word on the street? A lot of confusion. There's a lot of confusion today about who Jesus is. What's the ultimate question? Who do you say that I am? What's the answer? You're the Christ of God. The anointed prophet, priest, and king. Well, what is the Christ going to do? What's his mission? He must suffer, be rejected, killed, and rise again. So let's ask the question, who is Jesus? He's God's Messiah. He's the prophet, priest, and king come to die on the cross and rise again in victory. As the only way of salvation, not as progressive Christianity would say as a way of enlightenment or one of the many paths to God or a good way to God. No, Jesus is the only way of salvation. He said it himself. I always tell people, if if you have a problem with Jesus saying he's the only way, don't don't get mad at me, get mad at Jesus because he said it. I'm just quoting what he said. If you have a problem, take it up with our Lord. First uh, John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given by among men by which we must be saved. So the question is turned to every single one of us here today. Who do you not, not, not what your parents, not what your friends, not what the people in the street. Who do you say that I am? What's your confession? Is Jesus your Messiah? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Have you trusted in him personally as Lord and Savior? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one 
confesses, and is saved. We read this passage so many times, and we take for granted, I take for granted as pastor that, that you're here and you're saved. I can't take that for granted. That just because you come into a worship service that you're saved, that you have a relationship with Christ. Have you confessed that faith in Jesus? Have you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Do you know Jesus? What does it mean to confess? Well, to confess means that you tell somebody. You go public. Probably the best thing to do if you've never confessed your faith in Christ is to, after the service, come up and talk to me. Or confess it to the person that brought you. Or maybe you need to get baptized. Baptized is actually the public profession of faith. So if you have faith in Christ, but you've never publicly professed it, you've never gone public, then what better time than maybe after the service, come talk to me and say, hey, I need to get baptized. No matter what it is, you can't be a secret agent, James Bond, Jason Bourne Christian. You got to go public. You got to confess. Jesus is going to talk about that next week. So, what's the most important question you will ever have asked to you? Who do you say that I am? Only you can answer that. What's your answer to Jesus today when he asks you that question? How do you personally answer the question? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. You are the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king who suffered on the cross and rose again that we might be forgiven, we might have eternal life. Lord, if there's anybody in this room today that has not confessed you as Lord. I pray that you do what you did to Peter, Father, and reveal it. Pray that you open, a, open a blind eyes this morning. Do a work of sovereign grace in those who are not yet believers in Christ. Lord, for those of us who have made this profession, May it never get old. May we always be in wonder of who you are, Jesus. Will we never get bored with you, Jesus? Would we plumb the depths in the scriptures of who you are? From Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end of the Bible and Revelation. And everything in between that the scriptures testify about you that you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're our Lord. You suffered in our place and you rose again. Lord, the message is so simple and we probably heard it so many times, but it's so important. May we leave this place knowing what the answer is with joy in our hearts because we have Christ, the Lord, as our Savior. We love you, Jesus. We honor you. Give us strength, Holy Spirit, as we leave this place to live in the fullness of what it means to be a follower of Christ. 
When we fail, we know that there's forgiveness. So help us to always look to the cross where our sins were completely paid for. And let us always look to the empty tomb, knowing that, Jesus, you conquered our sin and our death, and you're seated at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding in our behalf. And you're going to come back one day in power and glory. And then every single person will be able to answer that question. And for some, it will be too late. Lord, may they answer it today. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.